Good morning, church. Uh, thank you for the blessing of ministry and music. Uh, it was a blessing to me, and hopefully it was a blessing to you all. So like I said, uh, I got a text at 10.30 Friday night that I was going to be preaching. Uh, and uh, honestly, that's not the shortest amount of time that I've been given to prepare a message by Pastor Larry. Uh, but it was pretty short. And so while I was sitting there trying to think of what to preach on, uh, what came to mind was Jonah. And probably the reason for this is because about this time last year, I had done a series on Jonah in the youth group. And so I had a number of notes and study to pull from for this message, which made making this message a lot faster uh, because I had already studied the book previously and was able to use those notes from previous. And truthfully, if I ever get the opportunity to preach four consecutive Sundays, uh, it will most likely be on the book of Jonah. Uh, there is so much that is put into this short book. Uh, this book is only 40 verses in length, and yet it packs so much. And oftentimes it's thought of as, as the pinnacle of the Sunday school book. Right? Every kid who grows up in church knows the story of Jonah and the whale. And it's very easy for us as adults to just view the book of Jonah like that. It's just a silly story about a guy that gets swallowed by a whale and then goes and preaches to some city that we've never heard of. And then the story ends. But there's so much here in Jonah. Now, my, my only sadness with this message is I'm not able to do all of Jonah. Uh, now, that's probably not a sadness for you, since you probably have plans after this. Uh, but to me, that, that bugs me a little bit, because I really do want to address the whole book. But I will just be doing Jonah 1. And as we go through Jonah 1, I want you to focus on three, I'm going to call them literary devices. That's probably not the right term. There's probably a correct term. I'm just going to call them literary devices that run through the book of Jonah. The first is the literary device of up and down. These two directions come into play in Jonah through majority of the book. The second is on obedience. And the third is the Gentiles compared to Jonah. These three devices run through the book, and the book uses them to great effect to explain what's going on in the book. And so hopefully you're in Jonah 1, and we're going to start with verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. And so this is our prophet Jonah, the son of Amittai. Most people don't know this, but he shows up somewhere else in scripture. He shows up in second Kings. If you turn to second Kings 14, so you flip a few books back, second Kings 14 verses 23 to 27, he shows up here, albeit briefly under the reign of Jeroboam the second. So, 2 Kings 14, starting in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. So, this is Jeroboam the second, king of Israel. This is after Judah and Israel have split, so they're two separate nations. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah. 
according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter. For there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. <clears throat> so if you take the position that these are the same, these two Jonas are the same person, and I take that position, what that tells us is that Jonah's ministry is sometime between 800 and 750 BC. And to put him kind of in the chronology for prophets for you, Elijah, the guy that shows up in 1 Kings, he ministers 900 to 850 BC. So Elijah's the oldest prophet, so to speak, once you get past David and Solomon. Who comes after Elijah? Elisha, and it's very easy to get those two confused. And so Elijah is 900 to 850 BC. Elisha is 850 to 800 BC. Then Jonah shows up, and Jonah is 800 to 750 BC. And contemporary to Jonah are two other minor prophets, Amos and Hosea. Amos serves 790 to 740 BC, and Hosea ministers 750 to 690 BC. So we have these big 50-year chunks, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, alongside Hosea and Amos. Now, I give those big chunks not because that's how long they ministered. Most likely, that's not. They didn't minister for 50 years, but their ministry falls somewhere within that span. So when Jonah shows up, it's about... 200, 250 years after Solomon and David. And Jonah in 2 Kings prophesies a restoration for Israel and salvation for Israel. And because of this, Israel comes into a heyday. Something I want you to understand about Jonah's time in place is that while he is in Israel, Israel is going through their golden age, so to speak. It, it, is the, it is the best and the strongest that Israel gets since the time of Solomon. They restore their original borders. See, prior to this, due to their disobedience, the Lord had taken chunks of the land of Israel from them, and their number one enemy was Damascus of the Arameans. But Damascus gets destroyed by the Assyrians. And so enemy number one of Israel at the time is wiped off the face of the earth. And then the Assyrians become the next threat. The Assyrians are the new big player in the area. But at the time of Jeroboam II, Assyria has a lot of problems. There's a lot of rebellions they have to put down. There's a massive famine sweeping through the area that has effects for decades. And so Assyria is struggling. Israel takes advantage of the political situation. They're able to restore their borders to the time of David and Solomon, who are both very, very powerful kings in the arena of their little area. And so Israel, and by extension Jonah, having this heyday, start to develop an us versus them mentality, where they think all the blessing is going to come to us and all the punishment is going to go to them. And this is a theme that runs through Jonah. What I want us to see through Jonah is that God is a God both of us and them. And oftentimes he calls us to them, even when we don't want to. 
And that comes into huge play here in the book of Jonah. So now to verse 2. This is the Lord to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. You really can't get that confused. Arise, go to Nineveh, cry out against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. Now, the book of Jonah doesn't actually list a lot of the wickedness of Nineveh and of Assyria. The book of Nahum does. Uh, and In fact, I would encourage you, if you ever read the book of Jonah, to then immediately go read the book of Nahum, because they both deal with Assyria. In Jonah, they repent and are saved. In Nahum, they don't, and they're, de- they're destroyed. And there's about three generations of time between Jonah and Nahum, but it's a very interesting history when you read them. But Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And even though the book of Jonah doesn't record a lot of their sins, history does. And one of the things that we have learned about Assyria is that they were known for cruelty. Uh, This was the first major empire of the day, and it reigned through terror. And, And when I say terror, I don't just mean like propaganda. I mean when they would come and conquer a city or a nation or whatever it may be, what they would then do is impalements, where they would leave the dead bodies hanging outside of cities. They would do beheadings, and they would take the heads as trophies and put them in their gardens. They engaged in torture against men, women, and children, where they would cut off limbs, they would gouge out eyes, they would rip off body parts. Uh, If a certain city was especially rebellious, they would take their leaders and flay them alive and put their skins on the walls of the city. Uh, They would pile up skulls in front of towns. All of this was terror tactics. This was the first empire to ever perfect terror. Because what they wanted to do was to break your spirit by showing you an example of what happens if you rebel against Assyria. Now, because of their just evil means of ruling, they always had rebellions because nobody wanted to deal with these guys. These guys were... These guys were beyond evil for the time. And this is how they ruled. This is how they reigned. Massacring whole towns, burning people at the stake. Nothing was off limits to these people. So in relation to Israel, not only are they the number one enemy, they're also renowned for their cruelty, for their evil. And I provide all this information because I want you to understand Jonah. We read this book and we, we laugh at Jonah. Silly guy, you can't outrun God. And we don't take into account what reality is like for Jonah. Jonah is a prophet to Israel. Jonah's prophecies to Israel have been of mercy and salvation to Israel. Israel is in their heyday. Israel has restored their borders. Their number one enemy, Damascus, is gone. The only other enemy is weakened right now, which is great because they're awful. They are the worst people group to interact with, period, on the planet. You cannot get more depraved than the Assyrians in the Israelite eyes. And on top of all of that, Israel is Jewish, Assyria is Gentile. The Lord is for us, Israel, and that's shown by the restoration of the borders, and therefore he's also against them. And what we see develop at this time period is a hope for the day of the Lord. Israel takes this idea of the day of the Lord and they pervert it. What they think is going to happen when the day of the Lord comes, and this is what they hope for, 
is that when the day of the Lord comes, the Lord is going to punish everybody else, and the tool that he's going to use to punish everybody else is Israel. And so Israel is going to be blessed. They're going to benefit. They're going to become the superpower. We're going to see this restoration to the time of David and Solomon, and all those wicked Gentile sinners are going to get theirs. We're going to be blessed. They aren't. They're going to be punished. And this is where the ministry of Amos and Hosea come in. Because while Jonah is called to Nineveh, Amos and Hosea are called to remove that misconception for Israel. And I encourage you to read Amos 1 and 2 as well. Because in Amos 1 and 2 up to verse 5, what you get is a bunch of judgments on all the nations around Israel. And then you get to Amos 2 verse 6. And now the judgment comes to Israel. And the rest of the book is about judgment towards Israel. And Amos is brutal towards Israel. Uh, one, of the, one of the features of the book of Amos is that Amos does not let up. Amos does not have a lot of happy things to say about Israel. To give you an example, turn with me to Amos chapter 5, verse 18 to 20. This gives you a glimpse into the religious thought of Jonah's day concerning the day of the Lord. So Amos 5, 18 to 20. You only have to flip back. I think it's just one book, right? Yeah, just one book. Alas, this is verse 18, you who are longing for the day of the Lord. So he is speaking to the Israelites who are hoping this day comes. When God blesses Israel and God punishes all the surrounding nations. For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him or goes home, leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? And so the assumption of the religious thought of the day is that when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be light for us and darkness for them. And Amos and Hosea do a lot of work in letting them know that's not going to happen. Because Israel, you're still very wicked. Jeroboam II is a wicked king. The Lord is just merciful to Israel. What Jonah's ministry is going to be is not Israel, you're wicked and sinful. It is the Lord cares about them. Amos and Hosea are going to deal with Israel. Jonah is going to deal with them. And he's going to show a very important side to the Lord. So Israel is on the rise. The Gentile enemies of Israel are weakened. God has shown mercy to Israel. Soon he will use Israel to punish the surrounding nations. So they think... This is, this is the culture of, that Jonah grows up in. This is probably the mindset that Jonah has. And then the Lord tells him to go to Nineveh and to cry out against it for their sins. Why? Jonah knows why. Jonah has a very good guess as to why God wants him to go cry out against Nineveh for their sins. And it's buried in Jonah chapter 4. So turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. Don't flip too many pages or you'll miss it because Jonah's a very short book. But we're going to start in Jonah 3, verse 10, and then read through. So we're going to see what Jonah's guess was, and we're going to see that he was proven right. Verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? 
Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, and by the way, this is still part of his prayer, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Jonah in chapter 1 has a very good guess as to why God wants Nineveh confronted with their sins. It is to give Nineveh a chance to repent. And in the, in the case that Nineveh repents, God's going to forgive them. And God forbid Jonah have anything to do with those, with them being forgiven. Jonah's theology is astounding here. He, he's quoting from Exodus 34, 6 to 7. We won't read from that passage, but that's a very important passage just in the Old Testament in general. And when it's originally given in Exodus, what it is, is it's an encouragement. God is speaking to Moses and saying that, yes, Israel is a bunch of dirty, wicked sinners, but I'm still going to enter into covenant with them because I'm a God who is merciful, gracious, compassionate, abounding in loving kindness, who forgives sin and transgression and iniquity. In its original context, it is God reassuring Moses that because he is merciful and forgiving, Israel will still be his people. When Jonah uses it, he's very upset that God is merciful. The accusation is that God is too merciful, that he's too forgiving. And Jonah knows this. Jonah's theology is on point. He knows that his God is a forgiving God and that if Nineveh repents, God will forgive them. And I'm having none of that. And so we get to verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Question, where's Jonah going? Nope, where's he going? Tarshish. The, the verse says it three times. The, verse, the book of Jonah is making it very clear. Jonah's not going to Nineveh. He's going to Tarshish. To, to give you some understanding, if, if you believe that Tarshish is Spain, uh, to, to put it kind of in terms that we would understand, the Lord speaks to you here in Jonestown, and he tells you, you have to go to Augusta, Maine. That's roughly the right amount of distance in the right direction. You hop in your car and you start driving to Las Vegas, Nevada. That, that is roughly the distance and direction that Jonah is going. Jonah is going to Tarshish. As far as Jonah is concerned, that's the end of the world. Uh, that, that is as far away as he can get in his mind. You, you can't get further away than Tarshish. And so that's where he's going. He is going to Tarshish. He is going five times the distance in the wrong direction. Because God forbid I extend forgiveness to them. Now, I spoke about literary devices. I want to point the first one out, up and down. In verse 2, it is arise, for their wickedness has come up before me. What the book is doing in verse 2 is it is connecting the direction of up towards God. God calls his prophet up. The sins of the people arise or come up before God. Up is the direction of God. And what we see at the very start of verse 3 is that Jonah rose up. And so we would think he's going to go obey the Lord. And then the text pulls a switcheroo. He rose up 
to go down. And here the downs start. He goes down to Joppa, and then when he gets on the ship, he goes down into the ship. And the word, if, if up is a direction towards God, down is the opposite direction. And as we would see if we were uh, to speak on Jonah 2, down is a direction towards death. So if Jonah is obedient, he arises up, and he is going in the direction of God and his obedience. But because he's being disobedient, he's going down towards death. Up and down have a very important role to play in Jonah. Now, something about Jonah that's very unique about him. Uh, All the other prophets that I can think of in the Old Testament obey God. Some of them drag their feet. Some of them complain. Some of them try and give up. But all of them end up obeying God. Jonah is the only prophet that I can think of that disobeys God on purpose. It's not an accident that Jonah's going to Joppa. He didn't get confused at the crossroads, misread the sign. He is purposefully disobeying the Lord because Jonah will have no part in God's gracious plan of salvation for Nineveh. Jonah would rather see every single Ninevite die. In fact, something that we'll see is that Jonah would rather be dead than see a single Ninevite come to repentance. This is the level of hatred that Jonah has for them. He loves the us, and he hates the them. And this introduces the second literary device of obedience. Jonah absolutely does not want to obey the Lord, so his only other option is disobedience. And in the entire book of Jonah, there is only one person, there is only one thing that disobeys God in the entire book, and that's Jonah. Everything else that is brought up in the book of Jonah obeys God. The storm obeys God. The lot that the sailors cast, as we're going to see, obeys God. The sailors obey God. The fish obeys God. When Jonah gets to Nineveh, the Ninevites obey God. When Jonah is sitting, feeling sorry for himself, the plant obeys God. And then the worm that eats the plant obeys God. The east wind that he sends obeys God. The only thing in the entire book of Jonah that disobeys God is his prophet is his chosen person. And this gets to that second literary device. Jonah is the only one by the end of the book that still has evil. Still has ra. The storm, the calamity that strikes the sailors, that goes away. The calamity intended for Nineveh, that goes away. Because they all obey the Lord. Jonah ends the book angry, wanting to be dead. Because he is the only one in the entire book who disobeys God all throughout it. And then we all go, Jonah, you idiot. What do you think you're doing? You're the chosen one of God. How on earth do you think you can get away with disobeying him? And we turn a complete blind eye to everything that we do most days. Because Christ calls us to forgive seven times, 70 times. And then we interact with that one family member. Or we're reminded of that person who hurt us. I'm not going to forgive him. Or we're going into 2024 and we're told to pray for those who persecute us and love those who persecute us. And then we think about the other team and we have nothing but hatred for them. Whether it's in our friend groups, whether it's in our thoughts, whether it's on social media, nothing but spewing hatred for them. Or Paul calls us to pray for those in positions of authority. And we'll do that when they're red. 
Not when they're blue. We point at Jonah and we go, silly, what are you doing? Until the Lord calls us to do something we don't want to do. God, I will do anything you tell me to do as long as I already wanted to do it. That's Jonah. That's, that's most of us. And it's really important to see yourself in the book of Jonah. Because Jonah's disobedience has long-term effects. And, jo- and your disobedience will have long-term effects. We love the us and we don't like the them. Whoever that them is for you. God can be gracious and merciful to me and to mine because we're the good guys in the story. And God likes the good guys. And God cannot be merciful and gracious to them because God hates them just like I do. Right? And this is why I don't want this relegated just to a Sunday school story for children. This is dealing with really important issues in just a few verses. And so Jonah responds to God. God calls him. Jonah responds by fleeing. God responds to his disobedient prophet. And here we're going to read a larger passage, verses 4 to 12. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. God, in response to Jonah's disobedience, hurls a great wind, and that produces a great storm. A storm so great that it's at risk of destroying the ship while it's in the sea. And here we are introduced to our third literary device, the Gentiles compared to Jonah. In this case, it's the sailors. So the sailors hurl their cargo overboard, and that's a little play on words that Jonah has there. The Lord hurls a storm. The sailors hurl their cargo, trying to keep everyone alive. And while they're busy trying to keep everyone alive in the boat together, Jonah's sleeping. And notice the language. This is more down language. Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen, sound asleep, further and further down. So the first thing I want you to notice is that this Gentile polytheistic sailor, the captain, He's not a Jew. He believes in as many gods as there are, as you can imagine, most likely. He is the one who wakes up the prophet of God and tells the prophet of God to start praying. Not the other way around. It is the Gentile captain who is concerned with everyone's life, not Jonah. Jonah's busy sleeping. 
And the whole reason Jonah is on the boat is because he doesn't want certain people to be alive anymore. So already we're starting to see this foil develop. This Gentile pagan captain pray to your God and is doing everything in his power to try and keep everybody alive. Jonah, as far as we know, he doesn't actually call to his God. The captain tells him to, but we're not told that he does. Between verses 6 and 7, it's the captain going, call to your God, and then they start casting lots in verse 7. Personally, I don't think Jonah called to his God. But that's the encouragement of the Gentile pagan captain. Then the sailors try to determine God's will. They cast lots. This was a very common practice, and you see it in uh, Judaism with the Urim and the Thummim where you would take either rocks or some kind of dice or sticks and you would cast them. And whatever the result was, was a message from God. Now, when we could get into the weeds on whether or not that was acceptable, we're not going to go there. What's important, though, is the sailors are trying to figure out what God wants. And so they cast the lot and the lot obeys the Lord and the lot falls on Jonah. And so they interrogate him. Whose fault is this? Who are you? Where are you from? What people are you? We need information. The lot has fallen on you. You know what's going on. We need information from you. And Jonah's answer, again, is perfect theologically. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He serves Yahweh Elohim, creator of the universe. It is rich in Genesis language. Jonah's theology is on point, but his answer is, includes a lie because he says he fears this God. No, he doesn't. If he feared this God, where would he be right now? Nineveh. He does not fear this God. And then we get into another contrast because the sailors immediately become extremely frightened. This isn't some little God that they're dealing with. This is the God that created the sea and the dry land. And they're currently fighting for their life on the sea. That's really bad news for the sailors. They're terrified of this God. And so they ask, what do we do? What should we do to stop the storm? You, Jonah, know this is your God. What is it? What sacrifice? What offering? What ritual? What appeases this God? And Jonah's answer is very simple. Throw me overboard. And then we get to verses 13 to 17. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord. Notice, Gentile pagan sailors are calling God. Not Jonah, God's prophet. We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three nights and three days. Jonah's suggestion to throw him overboard is understood by everybody to be a death wish. This is why the sailors do not immediately throw him overboard. Instead, they row desperately, or if you have the King James, they rowed hard. The word here in Hebrew is used in Ezekiel to describe digging through a wall. It is literally, they dug into the water with their oars. 
again we see the captain and the crew are exerting as much effort as they possibly can to try and keep everybody alive. Because Jonah's solution is a death wish for Jonah. And I think Jonah knows that. Personally, I think Jonah is really hoping that when he gets thrown overboard, he will die. Because if he dies, what doesn't he have to do? Go to Nineveh. And I base that off of how he reacts when Nineveh repents. This isn't the first time that Jonah wishes he was dead. And so Jonah's solution is, throw me overboard. Then I die. I don't have to go to Nineveh. The storm stops for you guys. Everybody's happy. The sailors, in their attempt to try and keep everybody alive by any means possible, dig their oars into the sea, trying to get back to land, and they can't. And so they turn to the Lord. And it's, it's basically a prayer just asking for mercy. God, this is what you wanted us to do. We're doing it. Please don't put this man's life on us. And they throw him overboard. And then the storm stops. And the reaction of the sailors, again, is a contrast to Jonah. The men, fe- this is verse 16, the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah claimed to fear the Lord in verse 9, and everything that he was doing showed that that was a lie. In verse 16, we're told that the men feared the Lord greatly, and their actions prove it. The, in the Hebrew, it is literally they vowed vows and sacrificed sacrifices. Uh, the NET puts it as earnestly vowed to offer lavish sacrifices to the Lord. Now, chances are this isn't a genuine conversion experience. These guys are polytheists. They're not going to renounce their gods. Instead, they're just going to add Yahweh Elohim into their pantheon. But right here and right now, they know exactly who to fear. And they know exactly who is deserving of their offerings. And it is Yahweh Elohim because he has stopped the storm. And then Jonah gets swallowed by the great fish and spends three days and nights in its stomach. And if I ever get the chance, I would love to do the rest of the book of Jonah with you. God is a God of both us and them and calls us to them even when we don't want to. Israel, at the time of Jonah, is waiting, longing for the destruction of them. I cannot wait for God to punish all the other nations with us so that we become the superpower and everybody else gets what they deserve. Jonah is a very good book to totally remove that mindset because it shows God is concerned about them. And this isn't the first time that we see this. We have two more passages. They're both in Genesis, so you can turn there. They're brief. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, God's promise to Abraham, or Abram at this point, and then Genesis 26, God's promise to Isaac. But Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, from the get-go, God has been concerned with them, with Jew and Gentile. Now the Lord said to Abram, chapter 12, verse 1, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. If you turn to Genesis 26, this is now not Abraham, but his son Isaac. 26 verses 4 and 5. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants 
all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is a promise that God makes to Abraham and Isaac, the fathers of the Jewish nation. And in the promise, it includes them. To the Jews, the them is always the Gentile in the Old Testament. And they're included in the blessing because it is through the Jews that the Lord is going to bless all the nations. And we, on the other side of Christ, know what the fulfillment of that, prophet, that promise is, the full fulfillment of that is. That is Jesus Christ. He is the blessing to all the world from the Jews. But this doesn't just come out of nowhere. God has always been a God of them. He has always been concerned with the them. Israel lost sight of this. Jonah lost sight of this. And instead, they looked forward to the destruction of everybody else. And how easy it can be for us to forget too. That God so loved the world that he did what? Right. That God so loved the world. Not us and ours, but also they and them. And I don't know who your they and them is, truthfully. Uh, I, I don't know if it's a family member who has hurt you in more ways than you could describe. Um, I don't know if it's just a random encounter with someone in your history who has done more damage than anybody else. Uh, I, truthfully, I don't know who your them is. God does. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for that person. God cares about them, too. He is a God of they and them, not just us and ours. And something he makes very clear throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that he desires for all to come to repentance. Not for us, not for some, but for all. And he calls us to go to them to go to all the nations and to make disciples. And so you have two options, just like Jonah did. You can go up. You can obey God. And you can grow closer to the Lord because the Lord is up in Jonah. Or you can go down. And while you're endangering everybody else, you can get closer and closer to death. But God is a God of us and them. And he cares about both of us. And he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for both of us no matter how wicked and evil your them is, he still sent his son Jesus Christ to die for them. And he is still more than capable of forgiving their sins because he is a God who forgives sin and iniquity and transgression. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you are a God who abounds in loving kindness, who is gracious and merciful, that you are a God who forgives sin and that you are a God who has set the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Jewish nation to ultimately be a blessing to the whole world. I pray that we do not fall into the temptation that Jonah and Israel fell into of a wicked hope that we would be blessed and they would be destroyed. But rather, we would have the same kind of heart that we see in the New Testament. That you sent your son to the world that all may be saved, including them. I pray that you help us to forgive. I pray that you help us to be gracious and to be merciful, to be kind to them. And I pray that however you work things out, that we would be able to participate in that salvation of them. May we be obedient to your calls and to your commands in our lives. 
May we learn from Jonah, not by example, but by warning, to obey you, to follow your call, and to hopefully see many, many, many of them come to salvation in Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.